Chapter Four of Longhead: The Story of the First Fire. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Longhead: The Story of the First Fire, by C. H. Robinson. Chapter Four: Cooperation. A few days after the arrival of the colony of settlers at the fire cave the conservatives of the group who had remained at the old home could no longer control their curiosity and so one afternoon they approached the vicinity of the new settlement after cautiously reconnoitering from the treetops when discovered they were cordially invited to approach for the old selfishness and exclusiveness seemed to melt away under the influence of fire and the companionship it inculcated and they were soon enjoying for the first time roasted carrots and broiled meat they soon lost their shyness and fear under the new conditions and remained permanent denizens of the settlement the men of the group soon observed the flint knives and spearheads used by longhead they at once appreciated their superior effectiveness as weapons and importuned him to supply them with similar ones or teach them how to make them for themselves he was now too shrewd however to risk the loss of any of his prestige by revealing the secret of their manufacture but agreed to make them similar weapons for consideration payment of which should be made in the shape of food and fuel the only commodities at that time of any value each man now brought him suitable sticks for javelins and spears and for each he made a long spear two javelins and a knife when the first supply of flakes was exhausted Longhead heated another nodule of flint and poured water on it from a piece of bark, but he was careful to do this when none of the others were about, and thus maintained both secrecy and the supply of materials. The control of fire and the manufacture of these valuable and mysterious weapons gave Longhead a standing in the group which none had ever before attained. Human society had not yet been organized in any form. There were no laws, no rules, and no chiefs. Each did exactly as he pleased, and if there was any restraint at all upon a man's actions, it came not from a sense of justice, morals, or ethics, but simply the fear of a beating by the injured party if any of his supposed rights were infringed upon. Soon, however, individuals began to consult Longhead in regard to ordinary affairs. One would ask him if there would be rain during the day, another the direction he should take for a prosperous hunt, and as he was always careful to make replies which were somewhat vague and mysterious, except where he had certain knowledge, he soon acquired a reputation for superior wisdom. Longhead, now relieved to some extent from the daily exertion necessary to procure food for himself and Broken Tooth, by the contributions of many who through indolence or ignorance permitted their fires to become extinguished had much time for thought and as he sat making weapons the manufacture of which brought him additional supplies it one day occurred to him that if a number of the men armed with the new weapons could be employed at the same time against larger animals theretofore always avoided the people might combat with them successfully and thus the food supply might be largely increased. This was the first suggestion of cooperation, and the idea but slowly took form in his mind. 
though it recurred to him almost daily. Up to this time each man had hunted alone, and if two or more happened to be in company, it was by the merest accident. But as Longhead worked out the problem, he concluded that if the number could be directed by an intelligent leader, their efforts might be successful, and he determined to make the experiment at the earliest opportunity. About this time, a hunter returned one afternoon in great excitement, and reported that a large rhinoceros had partly mired in a swamp near the settlement. He said the huge animal was able to make but little progress, and might be approached quite near without grave danger. This was Longhead's opportunity to try his experiment of cooperation. Fortunately, there were quite a number of the men about that day, and he at once called them together, told them to bring their weapons and accompany him to the swamp. He assumed the leadership of the party, and when they approached the swamp, each was directed to gather a bundle of dry grass, reeds, and brush. These he had thrown down as they progressed, to give them footing in the soft ooze, and soon they had a tolerably firm path from the solid ground to a place near the great beast. On their approach the rhinoceros made no further attempt at progress, but he turned his head with its long sharp horn toward his foes, and with loud snorts of rage seemed to dare them to come nearer. Their ancient fear of this formidable animal made the men hesitate, but under the peremptory orders of Longhead they ventured forward and threw their javelins into the body of the huge animal. It must be confessed that for some time the attack seemed only to increase his rage. He made vigorous efforts to reach his tormentors and snorted loudly. But while, for the most part, the javelins did not penetrate beyond the thick layer of fat which surrounded the animal's body, a few had reached some of the larger blood vessels, and when these were broken off or torn out in the desperate struggles of the beast, the blood poured forth in torrents, and he soon began to weaken. His snorting was no longer so loud, and he would lie down occasionally as if to rest, closing his eyes and breathing loudly, but with evident difficulty. During one of these resting spells Longhead came close to him and thrust his long spear with all his might into the animal's body just back of his shoulder. When it was withdrawn, the blood spouted from the wound and also from the mouth of the beast, and soon its eyes grew dim, its struggles grew less frequent and violent, and finally ceased entirely, for the great rhinoceros was dead. Longhead now for a while lost control of the situation. The men went simply wild. Their shouts filled the air, and to these were joined the shrill cries of the women and children who had approached the swamp and had been interested witnesses of the battle and its result. The great animal, an abundance of food for several days, was theirs. They had occasionally, before this, happened upon the body of one of these animals, killed in one of the fights which frequently occurred between the males of the species, but without knives they had been unable to tear the thick hide, and even when it had been torn by wolves or bears, the meat was so tough they were able to obtain but a few small pieces. Their present hilarity might certainly be excused. Soon Longhead began issuing orders 
and enforcing them by punches with the blunt end of his spear or sound blows with the pole, and some semblance of order was obtained. By his direction, men, women, and children joined in bringing more brush and grass. This was piled close to the carcass, and the men with their flint knives proceeded to cut up the huge body. The women and children carried loads of meat to the settlement, and soon most of the flesh was removed. The head was dragged by the men to Longhead's cave and set upon a stick on the platform as his trophy, while all stood around and roused the echoes of the ravine with their yells and acclamations. The first time a public acknowledgment was ever given a leader. Such feasting the group had never known. At each fire, Large pieces of rhinoceros steak were roasted on coals or sticks, and for several days every man, woman, and child was literally too full for utterance. After this experience, Longhead, as the organizer and leader of the cooperative attack on the rhinoceros and the final slayer of the animal, was by common consent regarded as the head of the group. His advice was sought on all occasions, and his word was law he gradually assumed the direction of everything that was done. Having demonstrated the strength of cooperative hunting, he organized easily a squad of the bravest and most active of the men as special hunters of large game. Each was armed with a long spear, two javelins, and a knife, and he required them to practice javelin throwing until each became expert. On a hunt, these men always kept within hearing or sight of each other, and they soon originated a code of rude signals by which the whole party might be informed of the appearance of any large animal. This band of hunters, on their first expedition, led by Longhead in person, encountered a drove of wild hogs. When each man had hunted alone with stones and clubs as his only weapons, these savage creatures were almost as much dreaded as the cave lion or the saber-toothed tiger, and now when they appeared, nearly every hunter, mindful of his old fear, scrambled into a tree. But at Longhead's command they descended, and he organized them into a compact body back to back. When the hogs charged in their usual manner, the slaughter wrought by the spears and javelins was so great that not an animal escaped for in accordance with their habit the hogs knew nothing of retreat and the last survivor charged as bravely as if at the head of the herd again cooperation had triumphed and the settlement feasted for many days the genius for leadership shown by longhead together with the superiority of the weapons he had invented and above all his mysterious control of the fire had now firmly established him as leader or chief, and none thought of questioning his authority in anything. There had been no election to the office, nor indeed any consultation on the subject. He simply assumed the leadership, and the group acquiesced by compliance with his commands. This first social organization for cooperating in hunting, the germ from which all governments and laws have grown, was not the only one resulting from the use of fire. The manifest blessings or comforts due to its use, and the mysterious manner of its production in the fire cave, hidden from the sight of all, 
began to give rise to the idea that Longhead and Broken Tooth must be in communication with some superior being. It cannot be said that man at that time had any religion, any conception of a god, or indeed any definite idea of supernatural beings. But there were many mysteries of nature which he could in no wise comprehend. Incapable of speculative thought, or indeed of much continuous thought of any kind, he was unable to distinguish clearly between the animate and inanimate. He attributed active life to all surrounding objects, and believed even the trees and plants to put on foliage, blossom, and produce fruit because they desired to do so. When a rock, loosened by the action of frost and storm, became detached from a cliff and rolled into the valley below, it did so of its own accord and was regarded with fear. A man would make a wide circuit to avoid it in passing, and none would voluntarily approach it. They lived in a region of cliffs and mountains, and when one gave a shout under proper conditions, his words were repeated, sometimes more than once, and none could find the mysterious beings who did the mocking. Indeed, after vain searches, they became convinced that the tantalizing mockings came from beings invisible to man, consequently his superiors and therefore dangerous. They began to avoid the glens and valleys wherein echoes abounded, or, if compelled to pass through them, did so in silence, that their dangerous neighbors might not be provoked to do them an injury. The curling mist rolling silently down the mountainside was to them another mysterious being of whom they stood in awe, and thunder, lightning, and storm each became to them personified and living supernatural beings who terrified them. They had yet no belief that man had a soul or spirit which existed after his death. This thought was to come ages thereafter. It was not long until it was suggested that Longhead must have subjected to his control one or more powerful but invisible beings, whom he kept shut up in his cave under the guardianship of the woman, and who at his command produced the fire and wonderful weapons. That Broken Tooth was the guardian of these beings made mystery attached to her as well, and they began to look upon her with fear and reverence also. The man and woman encouraged this by becoming more mysterious than ever. When further questioned in regard to the fire, they boldly asserted that the whispered stories were true, that their control of fire and the ability on the part of the man to make superior weapons was due to supernatural beings who frequented the cave and were subject to them. They asserted that these beings were so powerful they could strike them all with instant death, and would have done so but for the intercession of the fireman and the woman to whose control they were subject. But the people were assured that so long as Longhead and Broken Tooth should be treated with proper respect, their wants satisfied and their commands obeyed, they would not permit these malevolent beings to molest any of the group, and the fire should not be taken away. Soon the people of the group at the fire cave were informed that the fire spirits desired the man to remain most of the time at or near the cave, that they might converse with him at all times 
and instruct him in additional methods for promoting the happiness and welfare of the people, and it would therefore be impossible for him to take part in the daily hunt for game, though he would still lead them in important expeditions. On this account he directed that each member of the group should daily bring to the fire cave contributions of food, sufficient not only for the wants of the man, but of the woman and spirits also. The people readily believed this, for they were incapable of conceiving that such beings as spirits had not need of material food, and consequently each brought his or her offering daily, either of food or fuel. If, by reason of failure in the chase, an unfortunate hunter had no offering to bring, he was required to come to the cave, and, through the medium of Longhead, ask pardon of the spirits, and bring a double portion the next time. To all this the people of the group readily submitted. Longhead and Broken Tooth lived in comfort, if not in luxury, without any effort upon their part. The people were educated to ask the forgiveness of superior and supernatural beings whose existence was shrouded in mystery, through the medium of a priest whose natural wants they were required to supply, and thus a religious worship with a dedicated and supported priesthood, if not a religion itself, was established among men. End of chapter 4